Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 20. <clears throat> Lately, I've been uh, re-watching an old sitcom. Well, maybe not that old, but uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. I don't know if you've seen Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, like any good sitcom, they just take the things that are true to life and, and just make a caricature of things that we can all relate to. And <clears throat> There was an episode I watched, I don't know, about a week ago, where um, you've got Raymond, the main character, and of course everybody loves Raymond, right? He can do no wrong, the favored child, and you've got his brother Robert, who's kind of a goofy guy that life just doesn't always, you know, seem to go his way, and, and then you've got the mother, Marie, <clears throat> who uh, is, is an interesting character. Um, she's just the, the stereotype of what you would call a meddling mother. And there's this episode where uh, Robert, the guy who things always work out for, he gets this opportunity to interview uh, for a position with the FBI, like maybe finally something in life is going to go his way. And so he goes over to his mom's house in the morning to have her iron his lucky suit. And so he's eating breakfast while she irons the lucky suit, and she comes out and brings it to him, and he puts on the jacket, and he turns around, and you see this, this iron mark on the, the jacket, on the back of his jacket. She ruined his lucky suit, like right before his big interview. And he goes to his interview, and he's sitting at the desk with the, the FBI agent, and the, an assistant comes in and hands the FBI agent a piece of paper, and it was a fax that just came in from Marie. And she basically, in this fax, was telling the FBI all the reasons that they should hire her son. And the FBI agent, kind of in disbelief, looks at Robert and said, is this some kind of a joke? And, and Robert didn't know what was going on. And, 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 and once he found out, he just was, of course, livid, you know, at, at his meddling mother. And it is kind of a funny thing, but, but today in our text, we're going to see a meddling mother. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. And we're on the heels, uh, if you might remember of Jesus giving a parable about the laborers in the vineyard and how the first will be last and the last will be first. And kind of on the heels of this, we're told starting in verse 17 that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took his 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has alluded to this kind of thing, that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to die. But you, and the last time that this happened was just a few chapters back in chapter 16, when he told his disciples something similar. And do you remember what happened in Matthew 16? Peter right, being who he is, rebuked Jesus. And he's just like, no, this isn't going to happen. And then Jesus rebuked Peter, basically called him Satan and said, get behind me, Satan, right? Satan, like this needs to happen. And so here we are in another instance when he's with his disciples and he pulls them aside and and tells them again, "We're, we're on the way to Jerusalem so that he can die. And it's going to be a brutal death. He'll be mocked and he'll be flogged. He'll be innocently condemned. And he's doing this intentionally. Can, can you imagine this if, if you were in, in the shoes of the disciples in this moment? Like, try as, as much as you can to put yourself in this position. This man that you followed, 
for a long time now, this man that has taught you and discipled you and mentored you, this man from whom you've seen miracle after miracle happen, and he pulls you aside and says, this thing's going to happen and I'm intentionally embracing it, right? Jesus isn't running from it. You and I, if, if we knew that something was going to cause us to die, we wouldn't do it, right? There's a reason that I'm never going to go skydiving. <laughs> the, the possibility of death, like, I'm out, right? Not going to happen. If you knew that something was going to cause you to die, you would not intentionally embrace it. But Jesus is intentionally embracing this. And it kind of sounds like if it were me, just analytical me would say, this is a bad plan from the start. Right? Who decided this was the plan? Well, God decided this was the plan, so it's not a bad plan, but that's where my mind would go. What do you think you would say? Like, we can kind of relate to Peter in this moment, stepping in and saying, Jesus, no, you can't do this. We relate to that because we might say something similar, but the reality is that this has always been the plan. This has always been the plan And again, it's not the first time that Jesus has let them in on the plan. God's will is unfolding in Jesus intentionally embracing His movement towards the cross. Then in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Marie Barone, if you will, came up to Him with her sons kneeling before Him and she asked Him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Again, imagine this. Have you ever had somebody in your family maybe announce that they have a terminal illness and that they don't have much time left to live? Have you ever been in that kind of a moment? This is that kind of moment. And can you imagine in that moment if somebody in your family, their response was, hey, Grandpa, what are you going to do with your car after you're gone? Hey, Grandpa, what's the plan with the house after you're gone? Right? It's insensitive. Right? If, if this story were to be put out on social media today, the critics would call it tone deaf. Right? They would say it's tone deaf. Here Jesus is announcing to His disciples that He's on His way on purpose to the cross, right? That he is going to die. He says it'll be raised in the third day, but you can imagine that maybe they didn't hear that part, right? Maybe they're just overwhelmed with this thought that that their friend is on his way to death, that they didn't hear that part. Or if they did, maybe they didn't believe that part, right? That's kind of a crazy claim. I'm going to die and I'm going to raise in the third day. You, You can't blame them for maybe having some skepticism when Jesus said that part. But then this meddling mother, the sons of Zebedee, who is likely the sister of Jesus' mother. So this is likely Jesus' aunt, okay? Which would make her sons Jesus' cousins. And this meddling mother comes to Jesus upon the announcement of his death and says, when you die, or after you die, can you put your cousins on your right and left? Can you give them the most prominent places in your kingdom? when you die. She's lobbying for them to be the assistant regional managers of God's kingdom. Kudos to you if you get that reference. Mark's gospel tells us that it was actually the sons, James and John, that came up to him. 
And this isn't necessarily a discrepancy, uh, and it doesn't necessarily matter if it was actually the sons themselves or the mother on behalf of the sons. The point is, is that this is an audacious request. This is an absolutely audacious request in the moment. They're asking to be the number two and the number three in God's kingdom, in His glory. Maybe you're sitting with the tension of just this moment, right? The the audacity of what's happening here, right? Jesus intentionally moving towards death, not a small thing, but, but Jesus submitting to the plan and the will of the Father, Again, we're thinking about the, the audacity of just this bold ask, the insensitivity of the moment in which the ask came. It's still an audacious, audacious ask, but maybe they could have waited a little while, right? At least waited a little while and kind of after you know, the moment had passed, maybe they could pull Jesus aside and say, hey, we've got a question for you. Still was a crazy question, but, but there's a lot going on here in this moment. And I can't help but think just in all of this, what's going on here, is that they're looking at Jesus as nothing more than a means to their end, it would seem. Now, we know that that these guys eventually figure it out, right? They eventually figure out who Jesus is, and they eventually figure out that He's much more than a means to an end. But in this moment, they're looking at Jesus, I think, as a means to an end, rather than looking at him as an end in and of himself. And I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. There are times in in my life where I look at Jesus sometimes as just a means to me getting what I want to get. Right? My prayers reflect that sometimes in the way that I pray. Right? When things don't go my way, I'm real quick to, to, to pray to God and say, look, I've got a better idea than what's unfolding here. Right? I, I've put lots of notes in, in the, the heavenly suggestion box of how to do things better. Right? I think about in, in some circles, um, there, there's a line of thinking in business training that tells you that in order to achieve success, that you must have some sort of spirituality in your life, right? I've sat in these kinds of trainings where it tells you that we've measured, you know, all the millionaires in the world, and and we've come up with kind of the common denominators among millionaires. And one of the common denominators that they'll tell you is that, you know, successful people, and and how, how do you define success? Usually you define success as, you know, power, money, moving up the corporate ladder, whatever, But they'll tell you that in order to be successful, successful people have a spiritual side to them. And what this teaching is, is nothing more than saying spirituality is a means to an end. Whether it's Jesus or whether it's somebody or something else, you have to have an outlet for spirituality. And that religion is a means to that end. And we we would say that that's a false gospel. Like, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. Jesus is not your genie in a bottle, right? There's no lamp that if you, you know, rub it just the right way that that the genie is going to appear and and grant your every wish. Some days I wish that were true. Some days I wish that it were that easy. But that's not who Jesus is. And I would ask you, because I know this is true of me, do you sometimes look at Jesus 
simply as a means to your end, whatever your end is. That, that, that's what this mother and her sons are doing in the moment. And I can't help but connect the dots in this kind of thinking that, that probably leads some, maybe many, to, to subscribe to more of a prosperity theology. Right, a theology that says that God wants you to be healthy and, and wealthy and have it all. And I would just simply ask, how did that work out for the Apostle Paul? How did that work out for Jesus himself while he was on this earth? Not so well. This kind of thinking misses the mark of the gospel because Jesus is so much more. He's an end in and of himself. He's not a means to our end. And this mother and her sons can't see past that yet. Like I said, they'll figure it out and eventually they'll see past this. They'll come into an understanding of of the full truth and the fullness of the gospel. But, But in this moment, they can't see past, Jesus, here's what I want you to do for me. And we preach a gospel here that's not so much asking Jesus to do for us as much as it is telling us and reminding us week in and week out what Jesus has already done for us. And it's our belief that when you understand what Jesus has done for you, it changes what you ask of Him. Right? It has bearing on the way that you pray and the way that you look at Him. Jesus asks this mother, what do you want? And I love it. When, when Jesus asks questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Right? He knows. He, he knows what's coming. He, he's being merciful and he's being patient with this crazy question. And in verse 22, it says that Jesus answered the mother, his aunt, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, meaning the mother and the son, said to him, we are able. And the fact that they answered this question that they're able really shows that they don't understand what they're asking. Right? These sons don't understand what's happening. They don't understand yet what's unfolding. Kind of like Peter a few chapters back rebuking Jesus for moving towards death. Right? James and John, they don't understand yet what's unfolding because they're saying, yeah, we can handle what you can handle. And we, we know that that's crazy. Again, an audacious response. Interestingly enough, however, Jesus tells them in verse 23, you will drink my cup. And church history tells us that in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12 tells us, the Bible tells us that James was killed by the sword at the orders of Herod. He was martyred for his faith. Church history tells us that John... Uh, they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him in a vat of oil. Can you imagine? Horrible way to die. Well, John, did, it didn't kill him. So what a worse way to not die, right, is to survive that. And John lived out his days and, and died a, a natural death, but it wasn't the, because they didn't try to martyr him for his faith. And so interestingly enough, the, these brothers, they, they did drink the cup that Jesus drank not exactly the cup, but they, but they did become martyrs for their faith. But Jesus tells them in verse 23, to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those 
for whom it's been prepared. In other words, he's telling them it's above their pay grade. It's above their pay grade to ask. It's above their pay grade to know who's going to be the assistant regional managers of the kingdom of heaven, right? The number two and the number three. It's not for them to ask. It's not for them to know above their pay grade. And so they're in clearly over their heads, right? This mother and this son and asking Jesus. And we don't see Jesus answering them sarcastically, right? We don't see Jesus speaking down to them. We see Jesus just patiently answering crazy questions like he does, right? Have you ever had to answer kind of what you would consider to be a stupid question, right? You probably don't do it with the patience and the grace of Jesus, do you, right? We, we don't, right? I don't. But here we see just some patience and grace on the part of Jesus, as he has bigger things on his mind, right? He, he has the cross in view right now. And he doesn't need to be bothered with these silly questions, but he doesn't tell them that, right? He, he allows himself to be bothered with their silliness. Now imagine for a moment you're here and you overhear this. Let's say that you're one of the, one of the other 10 over here. What's going through your mind right now? What are you thinking? In shocking news, when the ten heard about it, we're told that they were indignant in verse 24. They were indignant at the two brothers. They were angry. Right? Who can blame them? Right? What makes these two brothers think that they deserve to sit at the right and the left of Jesus? Right? Maybe I deserve it. Right? Maybe some of the ten were thinking that. Maybe some of the ten were just recognizing the questions for the silliness that they were but they were indignant. And Jesus, never missing a teaching moment in verse 25, called to them and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus takes a moment with the ten who are indignant at the crazy question, and he pulls them together, and he gives them this little quick lesson in how the world works. Right? Here's how the world works. Those who are in authority exercise authority. Right? Those who are in authority, they lord it over them. And we understand this because we, we get how authority, like, like somebody's got to be in charge, otherwise nothing would ever get done, right? Somebody's got to be the decisive one to say, here's how things are going to go down, right? Somebody has got to be in charge of running a business so that this business will be here tomorrow. Somebody's got to be in charge of our, of our government so that things function, decisions have to be made, and sometimes hard decisions have to be made. Sometimes unpopular decisions have to be made. Sometimes decisions have to be made that get nothing but griping and complaints, and we have to have leaders in positions that can make these decisions and that can handle the fallout from their decisions, right? We understand this, and this is how the world works. We, we put people often in leadership positions who are decisive, who are the smartest and the brightest and the best and even the best-looking and we put those people in positions and we follow them. 
And sometimes we even allow ourselves to have that authority exercised over us. We, we understand this structure very much. We appreciate the CEOs who are the change makers, right? We appreciate the CEOs who are the influencers. Even when we don't always agree with them, we're, we're thankful often to have people in authority who can get things done. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this is the way the world works. This is the way that the world works. But he says, it shall not be so among you, Christian. It shall not be so among you as a follower of Christ. The way that the world works, it's, it's kind of our default. It's the way that we're wired. It's the reason that the world works that way, right? Because we're wired to kind of think in these terms. And sometimes this way of thinking, maybe not sometimes, maybe oftentimes, this way of thinking has crept its way into the church, right? And we structure our churches in, in the same way. We structure our churches with a hierarchy and a person at kind of the top of the food chain who's responsible to make the hard calls and the unpopular calls. And we oftentimes look for people to occupy those positions who are firm and who are decisive, right? And who don't take grief from anyone. And Jesus clearly says here to his disciples, this should not be so among you. Right? We, we can infer from this, well, we, we, can, we can actually take from this that, that Christians ought not act the way that the world acts. But we can infer from this that the structures of our churches shouldn't act this way either. The church is not a small business. And I don't want to get too far off into the weeds or get up on my soapbox about this. But we can learn something about this, not only as Christians, we can learn something about how the church ought to function from what Jesus is saying here. It makes sense to us that some of these principles of leadership in the world, it, it kind of makes sense that we ought to run our churches this way. But Jesus is telling us here that Christians ought to interact in the world in a way completely different than the world interacts with itself. Completely different. Do, do, do you remember a little ways back in Matthew when Jesus said things like, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, let them strike you on the left cheek as well. If someone forces you to go a mile with them, go two miles. Right, if they ask for some of your clothing, give them more than they ask for. Right, these things that are kind of counterintuitive to us. As Christians, we, we ought to operate in the world in a counterintuitive way. And if that's true, then the church ought to operate in a counterintuitive way in the world as well. And he clearly tells his disciples that this thinking of the world should not be so among you. And Jesus gives us a lesson here on what it looks like to operate as a Christian in the world. He says that whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The world would say whoever would be great among you would be the one that amasses the most wealth. Jesus said whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's an audacious claim. Sla slavery is bad, right? We, we, we don't want to talk about slavery but Jesus says, whoever would be first or whoever would be great among you must be your servant 
and your slave. Do you see the, the opposition to the worldly way of thinking here in, in the kingdom of Christ way of thinking? Greatness in God's economy equals servanthood. And being first in God's economy equals enslavement. Why is it this way? Why would Jesus come in a way that's so opposite of the world and not conform to the ways of the world? Verse 28, Jesus tells us, he gives us kind of this reasoning that he's expecting this of Christians to be servants and to be slaves. And he gives us the context by saying that even the Son of Man, so even he himself, if there were ever anybody that deserved to be served, it would be Jesus. But even he himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he's taking this audacious question from a meddling mother and her sons, and he's turning it into a, a moment where he's telling them some gospel truth here, e- even in response to their silly question. He, he's capitalizing on the opportunity to tell them of the gospel. Jesus came not to gain political power. Do you think Jesus could have come to gain political power? Sure. Right? He could have showed up and just said, I'm in charge of the government now. Easily. Did he do that? Did you know what he did? He, he submitted himself to a crooked government. And he died at the hands of a crooked government. Jesus showed up not to be an influence, or at least maybe not in the way that you think. Jesus absolutely has influenced, right? But when you, think, when you think of people in our society today as influencers, who comes to mind, right? You think of the people with big social media accounts and uh, large followings. You might think of Elon Musk. You might think of Mark Cuban, right? You might think of others. Jesus didn't come to be that kind of influencer. Jesus had a crowd that followed him, it seemed like, most places that he went. But, but Jesus didn't come to be in the limelight, Jesus didn't come to be a domineering leader. Did you ever think Jesus, he, he could have showed up not as a baby, he could have showed up as a full-grown man, could have showed up on scene and pointed the finger and said, you people need to get it together. And I, here, here's, what we're gonna, here's the action plan, right? He didn't do that. Jesus didn't even show up as really a charismatic leader. Right? Jesus, again, could have showed up as a full-grown adult man with charisma, I think people followed Jesus sometimes because they were just curious about what was going on. And, and even like, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but like I follow people on social media that I, I abhor, but I'm curious. Like it's a bad car wreck that I can't look away from. Sometimes I follow those kind of people just because, out of sheer curiosity, <laughs> right? Jesus probably had some of that kind of following. And he didn't show up as a charismatic leader that, that everybody loved and that everybody was drawn to. He, he didn't show up that way. The, these thoughts, I mean, I could go on and on, but these, these thoughts should inform how we as Christians live in the world. And these thoughts should inform how our church is engaged with the world. So many times we, we see churches just replicating what the world is doing. Right? We, we see 
churches with, with pastors who are really nothing more than CEOs of a small business. And, and we, we see Christians fighting so hard to gain political power. And I'm not standing up here saying that we as Christians should turn a blind eye or ignore you know, the, the issues of our day. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics. I, I wish more Christians would run for office and hold elected seats and bring those values into those positions. I wish that would happen. But Jesus is telling us, we're, like, we're, we're not going to win. It's, it's not the role of the church to have political power. And Christians, we're not going to win with political power. We're just, it, those things should not be so among Christians. Yet we spend so much time focused on you know, winning the political fights. And, and again, we, we should be engaged in, the, in those kinds of things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be. It's just not the way that we're going to win. For the Christian, just like for Jesus, winning in God's economy oftentimes looks an awful lot like losing. Imagine the disciples when Jesus did hang there on that cross. Do you think they were pumping their fists thinking, yeah, we're showing them? No. They they had their heads hung pretty low, wallowing in what in their minds seemed like a pretty big defeat in that moment. The Christian, just like for Jesus, winning sometimes looks an awful lot like losing. So much of the way that the Bible calls us to live as Christians is counterintuitive to, to what comes naturally to us, right? And Jesus is telling his disciples in this moment, because he came to be served, not to, or not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus' way of winning in a very unintuitive, unimaginable sort of a way. And so again, you've got this mother and her sons thinking about Jesus as a means to an end, that they can gain power and they can gain standing through knowing Jesus, that they can get what they want through knowing Jesus. You've got the disciples who are kind of indignant at this and understandably so, but maybe they aren't quite understanding yet what all is unfolding before them either. And Jesus giving them this lesson in the way that the world works followed by a lesson and saying, here's the way that your Christianity works. And it's completely different than the way that the world works, right? And if, if these things are true, if what Jesus is saying is true here, that we shouldn't be like the Gentiles who lorded over them, and we shouldn't be like the great ones who exercise this authority, that we should be servants and that we should be slaves, that there are some implications in how Christians in the church operate in the world. And I could spend time going through all those implications today. We don't have time for that, but, but just think about for yourself, what, what does that mean? If Jesus says that the way that the world operates should not be so among you, what does that mean for how you as a Christian operate in the world? Bringing this home, Jesus is not a means to our own end. And as his followers, we're called to engage the world in a way that's very counterintuitive to how we're wired, right? And I want to end with some words from the Apostle Paul. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And our, our, our value as a church here is simply to preach Christ and him crucified and nothing more. We have a lot of churches in our culture today who, who preach far more than Christ and Him crucified. And it should not be so among us. Right? We get wrapped up in the issues of our day and we get wrapped up in the political fight in ways that Jesus says it shouldn't be that. Right? Go out in the world and be its servant and be its slave. And in the most counterintuitive way, winning is going to look an awful lot like losing as we preach the gospel of the one who seemingly lost, but really at the end of the day won in the most counterintuitive way, right? Jesus defeated death by dying. That's a crazy story that we wouldn't write. And I think we all can be kind of like this, this mother and her sons and, and kind of miss the main thing. And so my encouragement to us today is that we would continue to focus on Christ and Him crucified. That Jesus is not a means to our end. He's an end in and of Himself, which is why He was crucified. He died for your sins and my sins. He did something that we couldn't do. And He did so, so willingly. He gave His life as a ransom for all of you who are sitting here today and would profess the name of Christ. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all that would profess his name. And as Christians and as the church, we ought to take our cues from that in how we engage in the world. So I hope that you're encouraged today that, that Jesus did for you what he did. It's counterintuitive and it doesn't always make sense, but, but that is the Christian way. And I hope that we uh, can learn from that and that we can, as much as possible for us as Christians, that we would emulate our Savior 
in that our approach to the world would be one of service and enslavement for the purpose of many coming to know Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning we're thankful. We're thankful that you uh, did things for us that we could never imagine even doing for ourselves. We're thankful that, uh, that you did come not to be served, but to serve. We're thankful that you gave your life as a ransom for all those that would profess your name. We're thankful that we have these reminders in the Bible of who you are and what you've done for us. We're thankful that we have opportunity week after week to gather and to be reminded of these truths. And so pray that you would help us uh, again today to be reminded of Christ and him crucified and that we uh, would make application uh, to our lives in the way that we engage with others and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.